The following is a presentation of Genesis. Genesis is a place where you are invited to begin, belong, and believe. To find out more, visit us on the web at genesisthejourney.com. Hey, my name's Michael. Uh, Welcome uh, to Genesis. Uh, Thanks to Lindsay and uh, the worship team. We've been talking about uh, Jesus, which is always a good thing, uh, for the last um, 25 weeks. This is the 25th week that we have been walking through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, tonight, um, what's on my heart and really what's coming from the story that we're going to read is Jesus has been teaching and Jesus has been as we have model as setting an example for how we live our life. So I just want, just want you to consider right now, do some self-examination of how are you living your life. Jesus certainly was an incredible teacher and taught people many, many things. But his heart was not to teach just theology and to teach doctrine and lofty ideas. He was showing people a different way to be human, a different way to live. And so tonight, with the text and the story that we're going to be in, I just want us to start there. Right now, as you're sitting here at 6.30 on Sunday evening, and you consider and you examine your life, how are you living your life? How do you know how to even examine that? Consider some of the things, how and where you spend your time, how and where you give your resources to. What are the things that, as you consider the things that you really uh, frustrate you, what are those things? How are you interacting and engaging with the people in the world, the culture, the community around you? How are the relationships that you have with people? What matters to Jesus is how we are living his life, living our lives. Because if you're a Christian, how you live your life is a reflection of the one you follow. And it matters to Jesus so much how we are living our lives. And what he is teaching the disciples, consequently us as well, is that we would be a people that would care. We would be a people that would be generous, that we would give, we would love, we would forgive, we would be merciful, we would be compassionate. As you examine your life, are these adjectives that you would use to describe, I'm a person who is being generous and serving and giving and loving and forgiving, compassionate and merciful. Like Jesus came so that we would live a brand new life because of the life that he gave. Tonight, we're looking at Mark uh, chapter 10. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 10. We're coming to the end. There's uh, you know, a few more chapters to go, but this is the last text, so to speak. After this, Jesus is headed to Jerusalem where he is going to face a, sudden, or a certain death. He's been talking to his disciples about this. He's been warning his disciples that this is coming. And uh, tonight's uh, story, um, again, it's uh, sad but yet comical of what the disciples are still fighting over, meaning they're just, they're still not getting it. Like how they're living their life, they're still not getting it. So this is Mark uh, chapter 10, uh, just start at uh, verse uh, 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem. 
with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished with those who followed, while those who followed were afraid. What I love about just that one verse right there, where's Jesus? He's out front. He's leading the way. He's not like just amongst the crowd in the pack, someone trying to say, come on, Jesus, you can do it. Yeah, we'll help you get there. Jesus is out in front, ahead of everyone, leading the way to his passion, leading the way to his suffering. The disciples, that says, Mark says, the disciples were astonished. Like they continue to see Jesus say things and do things that leaves them in a sense of wonder. But then there's crowds who are following Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. And Mark says, these people were afraid. And I wonder is, what is it they're afraid of? Mark doesn't say what's causing their fear, except I can just, I can sense that they are a crowd that knows something is going to happen. Jesus is leading them to Jerusalem where he'll suffer and die. And they have the sense something is going to happen in our midst. Then he says, again, he took the 12 aside and he told them what was going to happen to him. He's laying out the game plan, and he's done this now three specific times. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said. The Son of Man will be be betrayed to the chief priest, teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, will hand him over to the Gentiles, he, uh, who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. There's nine different things uh, in that uh, passage right there that Jesus makes pretty clear. You look at uh, the first one, he says, well, we're going up to Jerusalem. They knew that because he said that. I'm going to be betrayed into the chief priest, meaning the religious people, I'm going to be betrayed into their hands. I will be condemned to die. I will be handed over to the Gentiles, meaning the Roman authorities. I will be mocked, spit on, flogged, killed. But he gives the promise. On the third day, it doesn't end in death. On the third day, I will rise again. Now, as you, if you're there and you're listening to Jesus say these things, what do you think would be the first question that would come out of your mouth? He's just clearly laid out nine things that he's going to go through. You're the, one of the 12 listening to this. What is the first question that comes out of your mouth? I would think maybe a, a question of like, do you need anything from us? Like, is there anything that we could do to help? Is there anything that we might need to do to be prepared for when all of this goes down? Like, Jesus, we got your back. Just tell us what we can do. What would be your question? It's amazing to me that James and John, two brothers, come to Jesus, and this is the question that the brothers ask. Amazing. Verse 35, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Really? Like, that's the first question that comes, like, they're almost hearing, like, wow, that's phenomenal. But Jesus, let's get down to what really matters. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. 
excuse me. Mark is being kind of nice. Matthew records the same story and adds another detail of the story that Mark uh, leaves out. James and John sent their mother to Jesus, and they said, Mom, we go ask Jesus for us. And so in Matthew's account, the mom comes up and says, hey, Jesus, those two boys over there, they're good boys. They're good boys. Do for them whatever they want. Surely, Jesus, who's going to say no to a mom? Nobody. Certainly, Jesus would not look at a mother and say, you're right, he's not going to do that. Who asks that question, do for us whatever we want? I mean, can you imagine going to work tomorrow and telling your boss, hey, do for me whatever I ask? I can imagine your boss would probably say, ask me to fire you, and I will. Like, who goes to Jesus and says, whatever we want, that's what we, uh, whatever we ask, do that for us. This is a person who's got a very high view of themselves and a very low view of the person that they're addressing. To go to Jesus and say, do whatever we want, they have a very lofted view of themselves and a very low view of who Jesus is. And Jesus has just told them, I'm going to be mocked, betrayed, flogged, spat upon, ultimately killed. And that's their first question to him. Jesus responds very graciously in verse 36 and says, what do you want me to do for you? Now, before I, uh, some of you might be familiar with the story and, and you know what they're going to ask for, but what would you ask for? If Jesus were to ask you that question, how would you respond? Jesus says to you, what is it that you want me to do for you? How would you respond? James and John, I'll read their response in a second, but how would you respond to that question? As best as you can, I want you to hear the question that Jesus asks you, because at the end of the story, we're going to revisit this question again. So what would you say? This is what James and John say. Let one of us sit on your right hand, on your right, and the other on your left in glory. James is over here, and John is over here. Jesus, you can take the middle seat. We're cool with that. But go ahead and put one of us on your left and the other on your right. Again, who asks Jesus, God's son, hey, we're worthy to be sitting with you in glory on your left and on your right. These guys were very confident that they were great, and they just wanted Jesus to affirm or confirm their greatness so that everyone else would see, look at James and look at John. They're sitting next to Jesus. Truly, they are the great ones. They had an expectation that Jesus was going to establish his kingdom in Jerusalem. They're utterly confused. They think that Jesus, either by military or political force, is going to take over, set up shop in Jerusalem, and rule and be in glory. And while he's in glory, they want a piece of it. 
They want to be known. They want to be recognized. They want to be upfront. Ultimately, they want to have authority and power, and that's what they are asking Jesus for. Jesus already, I don't know if you remember, this was a few weeks ago, already defined what it means to be great. How the world defined greatness is very different than how Jesus defines greatness. Mark 9, 35 says, if anyone wants to be first, he must be very last and the servant of all. Which is more appealing to you, honestly, to be first or to be last? To be served or to be a servant? Like, which one do you naturally gravitate towards? Which one is more appealing towards uh, to you? Like, worldly greatness says, you'll be first and you will be served. People will make a big deal about you. But biblical greatness defined by Jesus and modeled by Jesus says, no, you'll have a position of being last and you'll have a posture of being a servant. A position of being last and a posture of being a servant. Jesus not only redefines greatness, but he shows them this is what true greatness looks like. Jesus responds to their question, I think, pretty graciously. Mark chapter 10, verse 38. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism uh, I am baptized with? I love when people answer questions with questions. It's Jesus' way of getting these guys to really think about, do you know what you're actually asking for? It's his way of saying you're really asking for the wrong thing. Bless you. Do you really think you can drink the cup that I drink? Do you really think you can be baptized with the baptism I'm... That's Jesus' way of saying, do you think you can take the cup of my suffering and the baptism of my death and hardship? Do you think that you can really do that? They were very confused and, and thought he would have a crown, but Jesus... My crown is going to be made of thorns. My throne is going to be in the, in the shape of a wooden cross. And there will be someone on my left and right, but condemned criminals to die. Do you really understand what you are asking me? These guys say, yes, we can. Like this is the arrogance continues. Cockiness in their question and even more cockiness in their response. They look at Jesus and say, the cup, we can do that. The baptism, we got that one covered as well. We don't really care, Jesus. We just want to have a position of power. Ultimately, we want to be famous. We want to be recognized. We want to have power and authority and status and prominence and position. So if there's some maybe suffering along the way, it's cool because in the end, we want glory. This is what they came to Jesus asking for. And I love Jesus' response in verse 39. He makes clear that, hey, you, you know, the positions on my left and right, that's not for me to determine. But I do promise you this, you will drink my cup. And you will be baptized with my baptism. That was Jesus' way of saying, you're right, you will suffer. 
if you continue to follow me down Passion Road, you will suffer. Verse 39, Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with a baptism I am baptized with. Tonight is a message about really following Jesus. There is a way of following the way of the world. It's a way that we want people to worship us, make a big deal about us, put us on seats and thrones of power, be noted and recognized, appreciated, valued. That's the way of the world, but that's not the way of a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And Jesus is trying to make very crystal clear to these men, the road I am walking will be marked with suffering. Are you still in? It will not be easy. Do you know why it won't be easy? Because we ask dumb questions like, can I sit on your left hand and your right hand in in glory? Why it's so difficult is because it's dying to ourself. We are a people who so quickly, so easily impressed with ourselves. And that's not the way of Jesus. How would you answer the question? We come back to it again. Jesus says, what is it you want me to do for you? How you answer that question is an incredible reflection of where your heart is. What do you think was reflective of what was in James and John's heart? Pride. I mean, they just so filled with pride. Come to Jesus, give us whatever we want. We want to be in glory next to you. Yeah, we can drink that cup and be baptized with your baptism of suffering. What was reflective because of their question was a sense of pride. So what would you ask for? Is there anyone who would say, Jesus, would you make me steadfast? Would you make me faithful? Jesus, would you make me generous? Would you make me missional? Help me to stay the course, Jesus, that my eyes would be fixed on you. You can imagine what the other disciples were thinking as they were listening to this. How do you think they responded? There's 10 of them watching James and John and the mom, and they're like, yeah, you guys are right. You are the best. You do deserve to sit on the left and the right. Jesus Go for it. They're worthy of it. A fight breaks out. The 10 disciples start arguing, or the 12 start arguing amongst themselves. The other 10 were indignant, filled with anger and rage towards the disciples. Remember in the context, Jesus has just told them, I'm going to suffer and die. And they are still fighting over Who's going to be great? What they were really mad about, what they were really ticked about, is that James and John beat them to the punch and probably even brought their mother along. Like some of them were like, man, where's my mom? They were just so indignant that they got to Jesus first with that question. This is uh, the scene in Mark 10, starting at verse 41. 
And if you're trying to understand who Jesus is, this is an incredible picture of who Jesus is. He could have backhanded any of these guys and said, don't come to me with your selfish, pride-filled questions. He didn't rebuke them. He continues to graciously lead them to the place that they need to go. Verse 41, when the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We know what bad leadership looks like. People who have positions of power and authority that are just cruel, that are just selfish. I mean, I could just mention Enron. And for some, that just causes just cringes of the greed of the leadership of that company. Names that could be uh, names like Robert Mugabe, who is not familiar with what he's doing. He's devastating an entire country because of his greed. I mean, just go Mussolini, Stalin, Hitler, Hussein. We hear these, we know what bad leadership looks like. It's devastating, it's destructive. What James and John are asking for Do you think they would actually be any better leaders than what they're familiar with in Herod, in Pilate, in Caesar? It's just different face, different name, same heart. Their heart was filled with pride, and they wanted the authority and the power as their rulers modeled for them. And Jesus, I love how Jesus says, it's not so with you. Like, that's not what it's supposed to look like. Leadership, greatness, is so different than what you see, than what you have modeled before you. Jesus continues to drive this home. To follow Jesus, you live different. You behave, you act, you think different. Not like the ways of the world, which is so self-driven. Jesus says you live different, and he sets for them, says, not so with you. Greatness is found in being a servant and being a slave to all. A servant offering ourselves to others, not demanding that others offer themselves to us. Being a slave, meaning we're okay with having no status, influence, position, or power. Like, if that's biblical greatness defined by Jesus, are you okay with that? Like to be truly a servant of all and a slave to all. Consider this, maybe, would you be willing to pursue this greatness, biblical greatness, with the same enthusiasm and passion and drive that you would pursue worldly greatness that would put you up on a pedestal where you would be worshipped, made a big deal of. 
because we run to that. We put a lot of thought, effort, energy, passion into pursuing something where we will be lifted up. Would you take that same passion, drive, energy, effort into saying, you know what? I'm going to refocus and I'm going to pursue biblical greatness, being a servant, not one who just is obsessed with people serving me. I will be a slave to all. My first thought is not, do I have position, power, authority over that person? My first thought is, how can I bless that person? How can I serve that person? How can I love that person? How can I encourage that person? That's how Jesus defines biblical greatness. He's so concerned with how we live, and he says, live as a servant. Take a look at your hands real quick. I got pretty soft chick hands. Like when I consider like my hands and you look at your hands, are they reflective of hands that serve? Like when Jesus talks about being a servant, he's talking about getting your hands involved in other people's lives. Like a hands of a servant are calloused. Not hard-hearted callous towards other people, but our hands are callous because we're using our hands to bless, to serve, to work for the benefit of other people. By and large, church hands are not calloused enough. We're not putting our hands and using our hands in the way that Jesus is calling us to be a servant of all, a slave to all. Serving means sacrificing, and maybe that's the deal killer right there. An unwillingness to make the sacrifices necessary to serve those around you. Like what we're talking about doing in church planting, it's going to take a community of people who are saying, I'm willing to get my hands dirty, and I'm willing to make sacrifices for those around me so that those who would follow and come way long after I'm gone would be blessed, would be encouraged, ultimately would be able to know who God is. And the hope is not to get more people engaged and involved in serving in here. There are many needs. Some of you need to step up and start serving your community. But the hope in the heart is to get you more involved and engaged in the world you live in. That you would use your hands of a servant to bless those, serve those that are directly around you. Like in a very practical way, start being a helpful person to those that are just around you. So that stop and shop uh, two days ago, and uh, I walked in, and there's some guy who's just talking, and uh, he's trying to push, I think he was selling the Boston Globe. If you sign up for the Boston Globe, you get a $20 gift card. There was like four or five people in front of me, and he tried to talk to each of these people. They just blew him off, walked right by him, like didn't even acknowledge his existence. And so it was my turn. I'm next in line, and I felt like doing the same thing. I I don't care what you have to say. I'm not interested in the globe. 
But in that moment, God just said, would you just stop and listen? And so I listened to him for all of about two minutes. I'm not a subscriber to the Boston Globe now, but the man, as I walked away, he said, thanks for just listening. It's that simple. And it took all of two minutes just to listen to him. Like in the world you live in, start serving people. And the beauty of this is when you are serving people, you are reflecting Jesus. If you want to reflect Jesus to the world around you, get your hands dirty and start serving. Start listening to people. Start helping people. Go beyond, be willing to make sacrifices. And when people see that, because it's so different, who does that? Where are the people that are just bent on serving and are bent on saying, I'm okay to be considered a slave. I don't need status, position, and power and authority. Can you imagine what this community would look like if we just went after that? Like if everyone in here tonight, all 70, 80, 90 of us said, you know what? Forget it. I'm done with low living, pursuing worldly greatness, and I'm going to go hardcore, relentless, and just serve and see what God does. Like, what do you think this community would look like if more of our arguments were trying to outserve one another than be driven by what is not being done for me? Like, what would this community look like? What do you think the community, the culture around us would look like if there was a church that would say, we are bent on being servants? Why? Because we're okay with being slaves. What? Yet we're not a people obsessed with position and power. How can we serve you? Knowing that when you are doing that, you are reflecting Jesus to the world around you. Jesus using your hands to draw people to himself. I don't know about you, but I want to do that. I want to be part of a community that is just bent on going for it, not just in here, but out there. Jesus has been talking for a very long time about that he's going to die. But what we see now in Mark for the very first time is he tells us why he's going to die. Three separate occasions he said, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. But for the very first time, Jesus makes clear, this is why I'm going to die. And at the very end of um, verse 45, the Son of Man did not come to serve, uh, to be served, uh, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I know we typically understand the word ransom in the context of movies that involve murder or uh, kidnappings. That's not necessarily how they understood the word ransom back in the first century. Someone who would be ransomed, three different people would fall into this category. The first person would be um, someone who was a prisoner of war, someone who would be a slave and would be liberated from slavery, or a condemned person, meaning condemned to die. 
So it wasn't someone like a Mel Gibson movie called Ransom where someone's kidnapped and give me a million bucks and you can have your kid back. That's not how first century people would understand ransom. So the obvious question becomes, why do I need to be ransomed? I want you to think about that for a second. Why Jesus said, I came to serve, not to be served, and to be a ransom. Why do you, why do I need to be ransomed? Like, I'm not a prisoner of war. I'm not a condemned criminal. I'm not needing to be liberated from being a slave. So if this is why Jesus came to be a ransom, I don't fit in that category. But see, all of humanity does. Why humanity, meaning you and me, need to be ransomed is for the very reason we're seeing in James and John. We're utterly obsessed with ourselves, meaning we're utterly sinful. And the Bible makes clear sin brings death, brings destruction, brings separation from God. But I'm a good person. I'm not the axe murderer. I'm not the rapist. I'm not the child molester. I'm a pretty decent person. We have a very high view of ourselves and a very low view of God. There is no one who is good except God. Jesus said that. All of us are selfish, self-centered, bent on rebelling, doing our thing, our way, utterly sinful. That's why Jesus says, I came to be a ransom for many. And what Jesus is making clear is he's the only one who can ransom us from our sin. I'm guessing that someone has played freeze tag in here. I'm guessing maybe you've played hide and seek. Let's stick with freeze tag. I forget the rules of hide and seek. Freeze tag, I think if someone touches you, you're frozen. You can't move. You're stuck until someone comes and unfreezes you. Silly childhood metaphor example. But the point is that kid, that person cannot move until someone comes and does for him what he can't do for himself. A prisoner of war. If you've ever read any literature on men who have been captive and prisoners of war. They were utterly defeated and without hope because the only chance that they have to be free is if someone came and got them, if a savior would come and fight for them, fight for their freedom. Can you imagine a prisoner of war? Someone shows up. My friend Zach over here shows up and says, I'm here to get you. I'm here to get your freedom. I fought for you. I've taken out all of the enemies. Do you think if I'm the prisoner of war, I would look and be like, well, I'm not sure if I like your way of salvation, sir. I'm going to stay here. I've been concocting a plan 
Things look a bit out of control, but they're in control. I'm going to wait for someone else to come. That would be utterly ridiculous for that person to do that. And the reality is that's what people are doing every day across the globe. Jesus has come to save, and he is the only one who has come to save. When he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, he's saying, no one else is coming for you. No one else is going to unfreeze you. No one else can free you from sin and death and destruction and separation from God. So when we look at Jesus and say, no, I got a better plan. I'll I'll work my way out of this one. Or I know I'm a prisoner of war, but I've got another deal going. It's foolishness. And so when we look at Jesus, the one who said, I came to serve, not to be served and to be a ransom. So the question, who is going to be a ransom for you? I sit here in just humility and gratefulness and say, I'm so thankful that Jesus came to ransom me because I realize how utterly selfish and sinful I am that I can't do it on my own. And Jesus came to set me free from sin, from death, from destruction, from separation from God. So who will be your ransom? Jesus makes so clear, I came to be a ransom. Ransom people look very differently too. So we're talking about living life differently, a different way to be human because of Jesus. If you are a ransomed person, you live a very different life. I love 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18 and 20. Flee sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Ransomed people are bent on honoring God with our life. How do I honor God? I do the very, I live like Jesus lived. I serve because I'm a servant. I'm a slave, not obsessed with position and power and status and fame and notoriety. Ransomed people look very different. Jesus finishes um, this part of Mark 10 with a great story. And it's the story of a guy named Bartimaeus. And uh, if you have a Bible, I want you to actually open it and I know you can read it on the screen, but this is the story of a man named Blind Bartimaeus. It says, they came to Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man named Bartimaeus, meaning that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that Jesus of Nazareth He began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I want you to picture this. This is a blind guy. 
He's a beggar. He's literally sitting on the ground like this. And he hears the crowd. What's going on? What's going on? Jesus is passing by. And he's, Jesus? Jesus is really coming by? He can't see him. He's blind. And the only thing that he has to draw attention to Jesus is his voice. And so he starts using his voice. His eyes are closed. Jesus, son of David! Jesus, son of David! Now some of you are like, is he going to do that again? How do you think the crowd responded to this man who's on his knees, he's blind, he's screaming at the top of his lungs? Shut up, Bartimaeus. Shut up. Stop screaming. You know what Bartimaeus does? Jesus, son of David. He's screaming. Why? Because he knows that Jesus can do for him what no one else will. And the beauty The crowds rebuke him. He's screaming for mercy. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. And guess what Jesus does? He stops. And I can only imagine finally someone is yelling who I am. A son of David was a messianic, a title for a messianic king. The only people to identify Jesus correctly is Peter and blind Bartimaeus in the whole gospel. So I can imagine Jesus is hearing, someone is calling my name. And he says, call for him. And so the crowds changed their tune real quick. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, man, on your feet, He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and he came to Jesus. And this is where I want to finish tonight. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. This story started out when two selfish, pride-filled brothers came and said, do for us whatever we ask you. Okay, what do you want? We want to be on the left and we want to be on the right in glory. Jesus comes to this blind beggar and says, what is it you want me to do for you? Some might think, well, Jesus, it's kind of obvious he's blind. Maybe he might want a sight. Why are you asking him such a question? Jesus is asking him this question because it's a question humanity has gotten wrong for thousands and thousands of years. How would Bartimaeus answer this question? Would he go with the need, which was to see, or would he go with something else? In Mark's gospel, chapter 10 alone, we see a group of Pharisees 
who what they wanted was to trip Jesus and trick him, trap him. We see a rich man who what he wants, how he answers the question is, I want to earn merit, salvation. I want to buy my way into the kingdom. What we see James and John, how they answer the question, we want a place of position and power. So Bartimaeus, what about you? The Pharisees are messed up. The, blind, the, the rich ruler, he didn't get it. These guys have been following me for three years, clueless. Bartimaeus, what about you? What is it you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus just says, I want my sight. I want to see. And Jesus says, because of your faith, you are healed. The beauty is that what he asks for, the very first thing that he does is he casts his vision on Jesus, and then the Mark records, he starts to follow Jesus. Bartimaeus just asked, Jesus, I want my sight. I want to see. Jesus restores the man's vision. He casts his eyes on Jesus, and then he follows him. What is it tonight you want? Jesus is asking you, what is it you want? Don't mess it up. Don't ask, answer that question with, I want a position of power. I want to be that man, that woman that everyone knows, everyone recognizes, everyone claps. Maybe some of us, I want to be a servant. Give me a heart that would just be bent on serving. Give me courage to follow because I keep wavering in my faith. Jesus, give me a resolve and a conviction to say, as a ransom person, I want to live a life that honors you. And maybe some need to answer that question by saying, Jesus, tonight, I want to be ransomed. I want to be ransomed back to a right relationship, restored, reconciled to a right relationship with you. We continue in worship. And before we would celebrate communion, what is it that you want? And I want you to go to Jesus and ask him. Know that the one who's asking you that question has the power and the authority to answer you. Father God, I pray that tonight, as we would continue in worship of you, that we would wrestle with this question What is it that we want? Jesus, I thank you that you turned the question around to Bartimaeus and asked him, what is it that you want? And the very thing he asked, he used to follow you. God, if there's someone who needs to ask to be ransomed back to you, I pray that you would hear that prayer. Some of us need just to ask to be servants, to have courage, to have faith. God, please hear these prayers. God, I pray that what we are asking is more about you and less about us. Genesis is a ministry of Hope Christian Church. We invite you to find out more by visiting our website at genesisthejourney.com.